And the one thing I haven't done in a long time is just kind of shared, uh, uh, to me, a humor story. Now, again, those of you that know me know my sense of humor is a little different. So um, it'll be funny to me anyway. So, uh, so this was always one of my favorite ones I've shared with you before. Uh, just so that you know, it has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But, but anyways, if you remember, um, there was an older couple that, uh, he was a farmer uh, out in Iowa. Uh, every day, man, he was on his tractor. Every day he was out in the field. But every day, he continued to dream of flying. He, just, he always wanted to fly, but his, his eyesight prevented him from even taking fly, flying lessons. But he wanted to fly. He just loved to fly. So he would sit for hours just looking into the sky, watching as planes at certain times of the day would be flying over, and he would just dream of being up there flying. Well, when he was about 75 years old... Um, Every summer they went to the county fair, and when they were at the county fair, there was this guy there with a small plane, and for $10 a person, he would take you up for a ride. He thought, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm finally going to get to go up in a plane. And so him and his wife went over, and when she found out it was $10 a person, the argument started. She's going, no, you're not going to do that. And he's going, yes, I am. I'm going to do that. I want to fly. No, you're not going to do that. And she would always end by saying, after all, $10 is $10. You're not going to do that. Every year for the next five years, it was like that. Finally, on his 80th birthday, he decided this summer, if the guy's there, he's going up. So sure enough, the guy's there, they get to where the guy has this plane, and of course the guy remembers him because they literally stand there and argue every year whether or not he's going to go up, and every year she ends by saying, after all, $10 is $10. Same thing this year, and they begin to fight, and they begin to fuss, and they begin to feud. Finally, the pilot goes, look, I'll tell you what, I will take you guys up for free if you don't say a word. But if you open your mouth, it's $10 a piece. And they said, okay. And so they got in the plane and off they went. For the first five, ten minutes, it was great. But then the pilot decided, I'm just going to teach them a lesson. So sure enough, he starts doing some loops, some, you know, some course crews. He starts taking them on this amazing journey. And he's going, surely when I begin to do this kind of stuff, they're going to say something. I'm going to get my money back. But not a word. Not a word. So as they're coming in for a landing, he just kind of yells back. He says, I just got to tell you, I'm proud of you guys. I thought for sure when I was putting you through all those maneuvers that you were going to say something and I was going to get my money. The old guy just yelled at me. He said, well, I want to tell you, on that one loop, the door fell o- flew open and my wife fell out. And I almost said something then, but then I remembered, after all, $10 is $10. <laughs> Again, doesn't have anything to do with sermon, but I always like that story. <laughs> so anyway, let's get started. I'd get that out. I've been thinking about that all week. <laughs> okay, Chad, top that one, dude. Come on. <laughs> nah, let's, let's begin. There was once a, a community of believers that was so devoted to God that their life together was just literally charged with the Holy Spirit's power. And in that body of believers, in that body of Christ followers, people just loved each other with this radical kind of love. They took off their masks. 
and they just shared their lives together. They laughed, they cried, they prayed, they sang, and they served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those who had more shared with those who had less until socioeconomic barriers just began to melt away. People related together in ways that literally bridged gender and race, and they celebrated their cultural differences. Acts 2 tells us that this community, that this church offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so bold and so creative and so dynamic that they couldn't resist it. In fact, verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And as I read about this new church, as I read about these new believers, the question that keeps coming into my mind is simply this. Can that still happen today? I mean, can, it, can that still happen today? The story is told of, uh, of a guy. He had been raised literally out more in the mountainous mountains of, um, of New York, but after he was married and got a job, they moved to New York City. And so for the next 10, 11 years, they, just, they lived literally in downtown New York. When their son was about six years old, all he had known was traffic and concrete and buildings and just the busyness of life in, in downtown New York. And so his dad thought, I've got I've to show him what God has to offer. I've, I've got to show him that there's more to just what our life is right now. And so he decided to take his little boy on a camping trip, just overnight camping trip. And, and they went out to one of his favorite places out kind of in the mountains, and it was on a lake. So they set up camp and went through the evening. When it was time to go to bed, he tucked his little boy in the sleeping bag, and they get, crawled into the tent. But then very early in the morning, he got back up, stoked the fire up, and then he got his little boy up and he brought him out wrapped in his sleeping bag and, and just set him down by the fire and they just waited. Didn't say anything, just waited. And then it began to happen. As the sky began to turn colors and from, from yellows and oranges and to blues and the sky just began to kind of light up and, and then it happened as the sun burst over the trees and, and began to shine upon his, the lake and the whole time he watched his little boy and his little boy's eyes were just as wide as they could be and he just had so much excitement in his eyes that when the sun finally popped up over the trees, his little boy turned to his, his dad and simply said this, Daddy, do it again, do it again. Here's the thing, as I look at this passage in Acts 2, and as I see all the incredible things that God was doing in the life of these early believers, it makes my heart cry out, Daddy, do it again. Do it again. You see, I believe with all my heart that it can still happen today. I mean, after all, the reality is this, God hasn't changed, has he? I mean, we may have changed 
But God hasn't changed. And he is still able to, to work through those who are available. He's still able to work through those who want to be used. So maybe, maybe the question that we have to answer right off the bat this morning is this. Are we available? Are we available? And do we want to be used by our God? I want to unpack three essentials this morning that were part of these early believers that, that I believe needs to be a part of us today, a part of the church today, if our dad is going to do it again in this place. Pray with me. Lord, I just thank you for this time, and I thank you for all you do. But right now, God, I just pray you will help us to focus our hearts and minds on what you have for us. God, if we need convicting, then convict us. If we need to change, then change us. If we need to repent, then help us to see that need and break our hearts. But most importantly, God, help us to leave this place with a firm belief in our heart that you can do it again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The first essential is simply this. They invested in the lives of others. They invested in the lives of others. As you begin to look at this first church in Acts 2, you get a glimpse of just how important relationships were to them. I mean, they needed each other, didn't they? I mean, they needed each other. I mean, after all, this was all new to them. They didn't they couldn't go down to the local Lifeway bookstore and get the latest and greatest book out about how to plant a church. They didn't have that. In fact, they were in the minority. Even though there was a huge group, they were in the minority. And besides that, they all had targets on their backs. They knew persecution ultimately could be the thing that would take them out because of the decision they had just made. And so that's why investing themselves and others was such a high priority for them. In fact, I want to give you two types of people they invested in. First of all, they invested in each other. They invested in each other. I want us to begin with verse 44 of Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can open it up to Acts 2. We're going to be starting with verse 44. We're going to come back in just a few moments uh, to verse, starting back in verse 41. But let's begin in verse 44. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. This is what it says. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, as I read those verses, even though I've read them over and over again throughout the, the last 37 years of ministry, there's one central theme that keeps jumping out at me, and it's this. It's unity. It's unity. I mean, unity is what gave them the ability to invest in each other's lives. You see, the reality is, of life is this. We need each other. There's no lone rangers in the body of Christ. We need each other to do life together. You'll never make it through life if you try to do it on your own. Solomon writes, 
Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You see, we need each other, don't we? I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, get this, he works on us through each other. He works on us through each other. You see, we need each other, not just for support. We need each other for accountability. We need each other to grow, to become more like Christ. Somebody wrote, and I like this, they said snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things, but just look at what they can do when they stick together. <laughs> you ever been in a big snowstorm, you know what they can do when they stick together. Think what we can do when we stick together as a church. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 133, verse 19, look what it says, how good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in what? Unity. They live together in unity. The bottom line is this. Unity matters to God and it needs to matter to us as well. In fact, it, it matters so much to him that on the last night of Jesus' life, Jesus prayed a prayer that stands as the foundation for all Christians. It's found in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Look what it says. I pray for these followers, but I am also praying for all those who will believe in me because of their teaching Father, I pray that they can be one as you are in me and I am in you. I pray that they can also be one in us. Then, and I want you to underline this phrase, then the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus, nearing the end of his life, prays one final time for his followers. He didn't pray for their success, he didn't pray for their safety, he didn't pray for their happiness, he didn't pray that they'd win the lottery. What he prayed for was for their unity, their oneness. He prayed that they would love each other in such a powerful way that that alone would be a, a tremendous testimony of who he was to a lost world. That's why this second thing is so important. You see, they not only invested in each other, but they invested in those who were on the outside looking in. Look at the last part of, of verse 47. Look what it says. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, their unity was a key component in allowing them to invest in those who were on the outside. They were fulfilling what Jesus said in his prayer. Then the world would believe that you sent me. You see, their unity and their love, their oneness was so impacting that it spoke volumes to a lost world. And literally, people were coming to be saved every day. I love what the late Francis Schaeffer once said. He said, our relationships with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Wow. Christian community is the final apologetic. I want you to listen to that again. Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. I wonder what the world sees when they look upon a church. I wonder what kind of message it's sending 
when the world looks at us? Are they seeing the truth of who Jesus is because of the way we love and the way we are united as a body? Let me ask you, wouldn't you love to be a part of a church that was baptizing people seven days a week? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? To, to be a part of a church that was baptizing seven days a week. Wouldn't you love to be getting emails from me or from Chad every single day that simply says, hey, whoever can come, seven o'clock tonight, we're baptizing five families in the Lord. The next night, hey, anybody that can come, oh, we're baptizing three or four more families tonight. Hey, how about you coming? Or tonight, you know, whatever, and it continues on. And how would you like to be a part of a church like that? Wouldn't you? Okay, here's the kicker you want to be a part of a church like that, then start acting like a church like that. You see, it's up to us to begin to live that out in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see Christ and they believe the truth. You see, if we, want, we say we want to be that, we say we want to do that, now it's time to live that and to become that. There's a great passage in Luke chapter 15. We've looked at it before. It's, it's where Jesus tells three specific parables that bring home one important point. He talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And in all three parables, the main content, that main thrust that he wants us to understand is this. Lost people matter to God. And if lost people matter to God, then lost people need to matter to you and me. They need to matter to us. Let me tell you, we can no longer afford to sit still waiting for people to come to us. It's time to start living and being what Jesus has called us to be. And I'll be really honest with you, I really believe this church is, is, is moving that way and doing those things. And I applaud you for that. I mean, this summer lunch program, I can't tell you the number of hours and the number of visits and the number of places Chad had to go to make this thing happen. But can you imagine the number of kids and families that are being touched with something as simple as a meal at lunch because they're not going to have one if we don't? You see, that's, that's becoming Jesus to others. And that's allowing them to see who we are. So, so there's two questions I have to ask because if we want this to happen today and if we want to be this kind of a church, even though we did a series called Neighboring and it was awesome, awesome, I still want to ask you this question. Do you honestly believe that people outside of Jesus are lost? Do you? I am dead serious about this. Do you honestly believe that people outside of Jesus are lost? Because here's the thing, if you don't believe they're actually lost, then you'll never go to them and share the God that you say saved you. Do you believe they're lost? Do you believe that those who have, well, have never accepted Christ in their hearts, if they die apart from that, will be separated from him? Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, you'll never share with them. I mean, if you just believe that God is this great, big, wonderful little, you know, old grandfather sitting on a rocking chair on the porch of heaven, just rocking away, waiting to just welcome everybody in, no matter what they say or what they do or what they believe, then you'll never share with them. So the question is this, bottom line, do you believe 
people are lost. Because until you believe it here, you'll never share the God who saves you. And so you got to believe it. The second thing is this. What are you doing to develop relationships with those outside of Jesus? I mean, what are you doing to develop relationships? I've told you ever since I came that I'll never ask you to do something I'm not willing to do. And I always put myself in positions to meet non-believers. That's why I study at restaurants. One of the reasons I study is because of the people I meet and, and, and the people I get to know, the waitresses, the waiters, the, the owners, those people who are there who, who see me on a regular basis. It's funny because Chewy's is one of the places I go two, three times a week. One of the guys that waits on me all the time, Mark, him and I are going to get together before I leave to play tennis. We've just developed a relationship. They're talking about, he's kidding, of course. He's talking about, hey, we're just going to retire this table that you used in the corner. It's just going to put on in memory of Jerry Jones. You know, it's right here. But uh, it's because I developed relationships with him. We got a, a young woman who comes in our second service who we baptized, who was a waitress at a restaurant I studied at. That's why I go to the gym. Do you think it's be to work out? I mean, come on, let's be honest. I do it because of the relationships that I build while I'm there. So the question is, what are you doing to develop relationships with those outside of Christ? The old saying is still true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Here's the thing. Unity, the... The unity that they lived out enabled them to not only invest in each other, but it earned them the right to invest in those outside of the kingdom. And so the first essential was this. They invested in each other, in the lives of others. But the second essential is this. They made worship a priority. Look at verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. See, I believe that one of the main purposes for us coming together as a community, as a family, is to worship God. In fact, I believe that their worship was the fuel that stoked the fire that was burning inside this new community of believers. It's worship. That's why it's hard for me to, to just stand on the sidelines sometimes after 16 years of being a worship pastor. Because I love to do it so much. I just love worship. It's a part of who I am. It's a, it's a part of what I believe God has wired me. I just love it. You know what the other thing I love is to be able to sit down here as Adam is leading and to hear you guys worship. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm going to miss the most is just to hear this place ignite in the worship of God. Because it's one of the reasons we were created. Let me ask you this. If, if worship needs to be a priority, then what do we need to do to make it a priority? Well, two things. One is you need to come prepared to worship. You need to come prepared to worship. Now, this may sound like a crazy question, but let me ask you. How do you prepare for worship? How do you prepare? My hunch is many of us, or most of us, we wake up and show up. I mean, that's, how, that's what we do. We just we kind of wake up. And we show up. How do you prepare for worship? A wife went in and she, she for the third time, said, Honey, you got to get up because we're going to church. You got to get out of bed. We're going to church. He goes, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to get up. I just want to sleep. No, you've got to go to church. I don't want to. And she finally said, 
So why don't you want to go? She said, well, I just don't think the people like me there. I don't, I don't like to be there. Uh, they, I think they talk about me So when we're there. So I just don't want to go. He says, why do I need to go? And she says, well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. But the first one is this. It's because you're the pastor. Now get up. <laughs> so how do you prepare for worship? How do you prepare? Let me urge you. Let me urge you to come to worship, prepared to worship. Pray before you come so you'll be ready to pray when you get here. Sleep before you come so you'll stay alert when you're here. Seriously. Read the word of God before you come so your heart will be soft when you worship our amazing God. Now let me tell you, this is not only important for you, but it also allows, get this, it allows those who are new to see the difference that Jesus is making in your life as you worship God. Here's the thing you may not realize. The way you worship is a testimony of the love that you have in your heart for the one who died for you. You get that? The way you worship is a testimony to others. So when others see you worship, that, I mean, do they look at you and go, wow, <laughs> they look like they were baptized in vinegar. You know, I mean, this, this is awful. I mean, your, your, your worship is a testimony of the God who saved you. So come hungry, come willing, and come expecting God to show up and do what only God can do. So we need to come prepared to worship. But the second is this, you need to leave ready to share the God you worship. When you leave, you need to be ready to share the God you worshiped. If you go to a restaurant, you need to share the God you worship. Maybe just in what you do, what you say. You know what the one of the saddest statistics is? And this has been proven out. The worst tippers and the people that waitresses and waiters say are the worst people to wait on on Sundays. You know who it is? It's church people. Why should that be if you just came from the worshiping of God? You see, you need to leave this place ready to worship and ready to share the God you worship. Here's the, here's the bottom line, it's, and it's this. Our worship service needs to be a celebration because we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he deserves our praise. And let me tell you, something happens when we experience the worship of God that causes us to leave this place and to go share the God we worship. And so worship was a priority for them. But lastly, thirdly, they were committed to making their relationship with Jesus as strong as it could be. Let's go back to verse 41 and 42. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Can you imagine baptizing 3,000? I got a buddy of mine who is at uh, Christ Church of the Valley in Peoria, uh, Arizona, just north on the northwest uh, part of Phoenix. Huge church. They run about 20,000. He, uh, uh, he was one of their neighborhood pastors. On an Easter Sunday about four years ago, he personally baptized 105 people. He told me he could hardly move the next day. Can you imagine baptizing 3,000? Then it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. I love that word devoted. 
Some versions say continually devoting, or it's the idea of giving constant attention to or being steadfast or persevering. In other words, they were committed to making their relationship with Jesus as strong as it could be regardless of what might happen to them. And because of that, the apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship and breaking of bread was a priority. It was a priority to them. They wanted to give it constant attention. They wanted to be steadfast in, in, in what they did and, and, and persevering in what they did. Nothing was going to stand in the way of becoming Jesus to a lost and dying world. Now, there were several things that I see that brought them to this place. I just want to give you a couple. The first is simply this. They realized that Jesus was the only one that could quench the hunger and thirst in their soul. I believe they came to the place where they realized when Peter preached that Jesus was the only one that could fill that hunger, that void, that could quench that thirst inside and because they realized it, they turned to him and were renewed and refreshed. But this is the problem I see today. I'm not sure that we always turn to Jesus to, to quench that thirst. I mean, the reality is sometimes our faith is somebody else's. I mean, we try to get into heaven on the coattails of somebody else. We, we really haven't made our faith our faith. And because of that, we're just kind of really on the outside kind of looking in because we really haven't quenched that hunger and thirst so other things begin to fill that. Sometimes Jesus is just another thing we try when life's not going well. So because of that, sometimes our hunger and thirst for God, again, it's overshadowed by our hunger and thirst for what the world offers us. John Piper writes, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because he, we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Sound familiar? He goes on to say, if you don't feel a strong desire for God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with the small things and there's no room for the great things of God. I love Mexican food. We love to go to Mexican restaurants. Not just Chewy's, but our favorite is Guapo's up in in, uh, Bear Lakes area. It's our favorite. We go there every weekend to get fajitas. But the problem is this. It's the chips. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? They bring out the chips and they bring out the dip and you sit there and you're eating and you're eating and you're eating. All of a sudden you realize, I don't have any room left for my main course. <laughs> I've eaten so much on the chips, on the appetizer, that I, I haven't anything or any room left for that which is the most important. The problem is this, we've, we've feasted too long on the things of the world that we have no room left for the things of God. David penned these beautiful words in Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Let me ask you, when you go to church, do you go because of the music? Do you go because of the message? Do you go because of the people, the programs, the activities, your friends? Or do you go to meet the God you thirst after? You see, they realized Jesus was the only one that could quench that. 
But second of all, they realize, this realization caused them to become broken in their spirits. When Peter preached and their hearts were convicted, God's spirit began to crack open that hard outer shell that sin creates. And in their brokenness, they repented and they discovered the saving grace of God. Here's what I think is so amazing about their conversion. And I didn't really think about this, and, and it just kind of hit me this week. They understood that there was a greater risk in remaining unrepentant and unbroken than in coming to Christ. In other words, regardless of what might happen to them in this life, the persecution that might come, what happened in the life to come was a lot more important. And so that realization caused them to become broken in their hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Let me ask you, are you guarding your heart? Or is your love for the world and what the world offers causing a hard shell to be built up around your heart? In other words, what is it in your life that's blurring the lines, that's keeping you from being fully committed? It was said that on one of Alexander the Great's campaigns, as he was waiting to conquer this, this town, this, this nation that was down in the valley. He was encamped uh, along the, the mountainside, and as nightfall came, he went to his tent, but he couldn't sleep, and he had guards stationed, of course, to watch and to look out over the valley, and because he couldn't sleep, he just got up and he began to walk, checking on his soldiers that were standing guard. When he came to this one young soldier, he was asleep. And when he got closer, the footsteps woke this young soldier up. And he kind of, uh, you know, woke up and Alexander just walked right up to him and said, Soldier, what is your name? And the young soldier just simply said, My name is Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great said, son, what is your name? He said, my name is Alexander, sir. And with a little more authority, he said, son, what is your name? He said, my name is Alexander, sir. And with that, he simply looked at him and said, then change your conduct or change your name. And I wonder how many times God's wanting to say to us, change your conduct or change your name. You see, we need to become broken people. We need to allow the Spirit of God that's within us to crack open that hard outer shell of sin and lust and bitterness and anger and crack that open so the Spirit of God can be released in us. If God is ever going to do it again, that's got to happen. Let's close. I don't know what all God has planned for the journey once I'm gone but I'm praying that he'll do it again in this place. I pray that his spirit will give, get a hold of our lives in such a way that, that he'll make an amazing impact in this area for the kingdom of God. I pray that your love and that your commitment for him will be so strong that it will be evident to those that you come in contact with every day of your lives. That's my prayer for you. Pray with me if you would.